Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Let's put cosmology and realms of rebirth aside and turn to a psychological account of awakening. Nibbana or Nirvana is variously called the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving and dispassion. It's also called the end of suffering, the end of the three fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, and the end of kamma. We've seen that the word nibbana means extinguishing or blowing out like a fire and have tied that in with the metaphor of attachment as fuel that gives rise to the fire of becoming. All of these are factors that are implicated in the chain of dependent co-arising, which we discussed a talk or two ago, and all of these will cease together with the unraveling of its vexing snarl. For the Arahant, ignorance has ceased, and therefore consciousness has ceased. Consciousness has ceased, and therefore name and form has ceased. The sixfold sphere, contact, feeling, craving, attachment, becoming, birth, and death have ceased. Where do earth, water, fire, and air find no footing? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, where are name and form wholly destroyed? Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire and air find no footing. There both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this all is destroyed. Is this actually what happens? No consciousness? There might be an enterprising listener out there who, until hearing this, have been entertaining a plan to travel abroad, to seek out, phrase book in hand, one of those rare arahants living in seclusion, deep in the forest among the tigers and pythons, hoping to bask in the radiance of his wisdom and to receive final instructions on topics on which the present talks turn murky. Now, however, that enterprising reader might already be reconsidering that this arahant, with the cessation of perception, of conceptualization, of thought, and of consciousness, might be incapable of functioning in any conventional way beyond perhaps sitting under a tree and drooling into his alms bowl. 
certainly he would be incapable of the delusive formations needed to discern this enterprising listener as more than the arising of a mirage or a bubble out of the emptiness all around and would lack, in any case, the wherewithal to assemble the formations necessary for conducting a conversation, much less for imparting a single sentence of dharmic wisdom. Does an arahant really have no consciousness? Not exactly. Recall that the descriptions of dependent co-arising focus single-mindedly on the disadvantages of all the implicated factors and therefore on the total eradication of the factors as an advantageous goal. However, this is misleading as to what actually happens when the goal is achieved. Arahants have overcome ignorance, which is to say that formations no longer have persuasive power. Although they no longer believe in an I, nor in you, nor in that other guy, they do remember what all these concepts used to represent. Houses have not vanished altogether. Rather, they have become like children's sandcastles, as pretend, and are described in what is now like an adult's use of children's language to talk to children. Let's take another analogy. As we know from a talk or two ago, if we watch television or go to see a movie, we worldlings and trainees might easily be transported into a fictional John Wayne world or into some other reality. We comprehend that world with its twists and turns of plot, but we do not completely believe it because we know it's fiction. Nonetheless, we might laugh, cry, be frightened, witless, be quite immersed in that world, that is, until the credits roll by, at which time none of it has really mattered. We can think of this alternative world as built of ghost formations, since in our more rational moments we see through them and may even appreciate how the director, actors, and cameraman have cleverly created the conditions that give rise to them. The fictional world is quite different from the real world in this respect. We can enter a theater, cry through a tearjerker, or be scared witless, come out of the theater, and, returning to reality, say, I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. We know the whole time it was not real, that the cravings and attachments that arose were simply ghost cravings and attachments. On the other hand, our attitude is quite different toward the outer world that we assume is really real, in which we do not enjoy the horrifying tearjerker in which most of us actually live. Here is what I think is going on for the Arahant. The world we take to be real is as unreal to the Arahant as the movie world is to us and it is experienced by the Arahant through ghost formations, ghost feelings, ghost cravings, and ghost attachments that the Arahant remembers as once being real in his own experience, 
but which he no longer takes as real. He sees right through him. This capacity is called Nibbana with residual fuel or attachments and has been likened to a fire that has been extinguished, but in which the embers are still warm, a ghost fire. He experiences this world with joy, no matter how it unfolds, yet also with kindness and compassion toward the suffering of the ghost beings that live there. In fact, he appears quite active on behalf of others, appears decisive, responding immediately and fluidly to the needs of others. Because the slightest hint of a self that might stand in the way is absent. Even if he sometimes conceptualizes a self, he does not believe in it. His activities are likewise beyond karma. Since no traces of the residual fuel survived death, the physical death of the Arahant is described as Nibbana without residual fuel, or Pari Nibbana. The Arahant can enact being a normal human in the world the way children can enact being cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers. Without this, they could not communicate with worldlings nor be effective in the working out of compassion for the good of the world. They are awake and recognize that the rest of us are still a slumber in a dream world. What, what bhikkhus, bhikkhus is, is the, the nibbana, nibbana element with residual, residual left? Here a bhikkhu is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, the holy life fulfilled, who has done what has to be done, laid down the burden, attained the goal, destroyed the fetters of being, completely released through final knowledge. However, his five sense faculties remain unimpaired, by which he still experiences what is agreeable and disagreeable and feels pleasure and pain. It is the extinction of attachment, hatred, and delusion in him that is called the Nibbana element with residue left. The Arahant can also withdraw from this world at will and enter into what is called the fruit of Arahantship concentration, a state in which formations and therefore the sense spheres cease. The Buddha recounted an incident in which he was resting in this particular concentration. Re-engaging with the conventional world, he saw a great crowd gathered in a nearby field and was informed that just a few moments ago, it was raining in torrents with streaks of lightning and peals of thunder and that two farmers and four bulls had been struck dead. The Buddha, though percipient and awake, had completely failed to witness this commotion. Once in response to a question from a deva, Rohitasa, who in a former life had a paranormal ability to travel to distant places very quickly, asked whether one can travel to the end of the world in order to overcome samsara, the Buddha replied, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling 
to know or see or reach a far end of the world where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception and intellect, that I declare that there is the origination of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. The least we can say is that awakening constitutes a radical restructuring of the human cognitive apparatus. Losing the fetters. A common way to track the progressive attainments culminating in complete awakening and one that also has a psychological basis is in terms of the fetters, the sanyojana. There are these ten fetters. Which ten? Five lower fetters and five higher fetters. And which are the five lower fetters? Self-identity view, doubt, attachment to norms and observances, sensual desire, and ill will. These are the five lower fetters. And which are the five higher fetters? Desire for material existence, desire for immaterial existence, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. These are the five higher fetters, and these are the ten fetters. The four levels of awakening, stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and full awakening, are described in terms of the progressive elimination or weakening of fetters. Let's consider these in turn. Self-identity view, number one. We've seen in previous talks that the stream enterer has eliminated the first three fetters. The most significant of these is this very self-identity view. The full sense of self is constructed in dependent co-arising at various levels, is rather pernicious, and is completely lost only with the loss of the eighth feather, conceit. The elimination of self-identity view is a first step in weakening the sense of self, at least at the conceptual level, by recognizing its constructedness and its contingency, and by seeing that life's processes continue perfectly well without encapsulating them in a self. For at least a moment, formations must fail to convince us so that we see through, for that moment, the artificiality of what consciousness otherwise magically conjures up as a self. Although the self continues to be a vexing problem, we thereby gain some initial insight into the nature of the problem that will prove invaluable in disentangling the mind. This is the vision of Dharma, seeing the conditionality of existence and thereby glimpsing the unconditioned. 
The second fetter is doubt. Overcoming this fetter ensues from acquiring a complete trust in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, which is the consummation of refuge. This can happen as a natural consequence of acquiring the vision of Dhamma, through which we can see that the path leads indeed to Nibbana. The third fetter is attachment to norms and observances. Our practice is rooted in norms and observances, in generosity, ethics, purity, devotion, giving ear, meditation, and the rest. Yet awakening lies primarily in letting go, even of the path that leads us there, an awakening goes beyond the intermediate satisfaction and joy that comes with practice. If we're still attached to the fruits of our practice, our minds are easily agitated at the slightest disruption. We need to loosen that attachment to begin to realize liberation. This entails a shift from goal to vow, from practice as a means to get something to practice as what we commit our lives to on a daily basis. Thereby, we do not give up norms and observances. We give up our attachment to them. The fourth factor is sensual passion, and the fifth is ill will. These two factors are said to be weakened for the once-returner and eliminated for the non-returner. They're still in place for the stream enterer. The non-returner is now ever so close to Nibbana. The complete loss of these fetters, sensual passion and ill will, represents the radical remaking of the affective life of the individual, the emotional life. For this marks the end of all but the most subtle forms of craving. From now on, Neither scantily clad last nor debonair hunk, neither chocolate cheesecake a la mode nor catchy tune will ever again make the heart beat faster with lust. Neither plunge into nest of snapping vipers, bite of bear nor lunge of lion, neither ghoul nor remorseless torture need raise a hair in fear. Neither fender bender nor rude waiter, neither computer crash with total loss of data, nor out of cash with total loss of face, need curl the lip or wrinkle the brow one snippet in ire. Life will simply cease to be a significant problem or a struggle. The senses continue to function. Even physical pain can still be discerned but nothing will necessitate an offensive or defensive posture ever. As, As a, a single mass of rock isn't moved by the wind, even so all forms, flavors, sounds, aromas, contacts, ideas, desirable or not, have no effect on one who is such. Let's stop here. We've looked at the first five fetters that hold back spiritual attainment. Losing these five bring one close to awakening. Next week, we'll look at the final five factors, all of which are lost in the awakened person.